Good morning. This is my wife, Sharon, and uh, we're excited to be here. Thank you for the invitation to come and preach this morning. Sharon and I celebrated our anniversary a week ago. We have been married 45 years. Yeah, we'll take that. Thank you. I don't know how that works because uh, it must be something with uh, mathematics because I feel like I'm 45 years old. But if you do the math, I can't be 45 years old. But uh, we're glad to be here with you this morning. We, uh, we have two kids. Well, they're not kids anymore. We have, a son and, we have a son and a daughter. They're both married, and we have five grandchildren. So three of those grandkids live here in Sioux Falls, and the other two grandkids live in Colorado. So um, we were in full-time ministry for 30 years. And uh, our last 10 years of pastoring was in Minneapolis, on the west side of Minneapolis. And so we retired from full-time pastoring. Now, let me explain this. Um, I sometimes tell people, we're not retired, okay? We're not retired. The only thing we're retired from is full-time pastoring. Because about a week after I retired from pastoring... I began working with a mission group based in Colorado Springs called New Horizons. And so I make, I do a lot of travel, international travel, travel to the other side of the world, three or four, well, there was actually a time a few months ago where I made five trips in 13 months, which I tell you that's more you know, in my mind, I would like to say that's more than I ever agreed to do. But there were opportunities for me to be there. So I, I travel three or four times a year. Sharon goes with me when she can. And I go to far away international locations where I'm involved in teaching and training pastors and church leaders who have little or no opportunity for formal Bible training. Uh, we are spoiled here in America. Do you realize that? Amen. We are spoiled. And, and one of the ways we're spoiled in is that here in America, there is one trained pastor for every 300 people who live in America. Now just think about that. There's a trained pastor for every 300 people. Now compare that with Africa. In Africa, there's one trained pastor for every 400,000 people. So it has been a real blessing for me to invest this chapter of my life in working with pastors and church leaders all over the world who have little or no opportunity for formal Bible training. And so when I travel, I'm gone from between two or three, and I think the most I've ever been gone is three and a half weeks at one time. And uh, it's been a real blessing to meet pastors and church leaders all over the world who are hungry for God's Word. Now, we work with a mission group called New Horizons, and in that big umbrella of New Horizons, our ministry is called Project 1-8. Project 1-8 is based on the last thing Jesus said before he went back to heaven. And it's recorded for us in, now you'll remember this, it's recorded for us in Acts 1-8.
but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now let's just imagine for a minute those Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Those are three concentric circles that just continue to expand. If Jesus had walked the earth and lived in South Dakota, well, now let me just, I wonder what he would have thought of a snowstorm like we're having today. But if Jesus had lived his life and did ministry in South Dakota, when he left to return to heaven, he would have said something like this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Sioux Falls, and all throughout South Dakota, and all across America, and to the ends of the earth. So those, those locations, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, are just circles, geographic circles that just continue to expand. So as the Lord brings us to mind, we would appreciate your prayers. Because if we're not here in Sioux Falls someplace, we're out there someplace. But for our time together this morning, I'm not going to talk anymore about our ministry. For our time together this morning, I, I would like us to consider something that Jesus said about the sin of judging other people. Oh my. If we were to ask for a show of hands, and we're not going to, so just relax. If we were to ask for a show of hands about how many of us feel like we're guilty in this one area of sin, of judging people, or being too quick to judge people, most of us would raise our hand, if we're going to be honest. But this morning I want us to consider something Jesus said about the sin of judging other people, especially in those moments when we don't know all the circumstances of what's happening in that other person's life. So here, here's, and I won't talk about us, let me just talk about me, because I struggle with this. Sharon and I talked about this this morning, and, and then Sharon admitted she struggles with this as well. I find that I am sometimes too quick to judge people based on what I see happening in somebody's life at one particular moment in their life. And I have no idea what their life was like for 10 hours or 10 days or 10 months prior to that moment. And I have no idea what their life's going to be like 10 minutes after. But I see people either doing something or not doing something, and I struggle with judging them based on what I see in that person's life at that moment. We're not supposed to do that. There's a specific Greek word in this verse, John 7, 24. The word judging here, Jesus is saying, stop judging based on your opinion. Well, most of us struggle that way when we see people doing or not doing things that we think they either should be doing or they're not doing. Too often, we judge people based on our opinion. Now, the Scripture's provide for us plenty of resources on that, yes, we should hold each other accountable. Yes, we should. And yes, we should evaluate people in their walk with Jesus, especially when we come together as a church and, and we're considering who should serve in this position and who should do this and who should do that. We should evaluate that, but not based on our opinions. We should evaluate people's lives 
based on what God's Word says, okay? So there's a difference. There's a time to judge. I prefer the word evaluate. There's a time to evaluate the spiritual maturity of a person. But I don't want to get involved with judging people. So, in other words, when you and I judge people based on what we see them doing or not doing because we think they're supposed to be doing something else or they're not supposed to be doing that, it's all based on our opinion. And at least too many times it's based on our opinion. If there's any judgment to be pronounced in someone else's life, it should be completely based on what we discover when we study God's Word. And so even though we hear these words, you know, let's just think about this. We hear these words, stop judging. That's what it says in John 7, 24. Stop judging. And for those of us who have been in church for a long time, wow, we've heard these words Dozens, if not hundreds of times. Stop judging. And yet we still struggle. Most of us still struggle when it comes to judging other people. So let me tell you a story. There's an author in America, and I, I like this guy. I like reading his books. John Krukauer, um, he's an American author. He, he wrote a book called Into Thin Air. It's an incredible story. It's, about, it's a real-life, real-life story of John Krukauer himself climbing Mount Everest, the tallest mountain in the world. And on this particular climb in 1996, when John Krukauer was climbing to the top of the world, they got caught in a snowstorm. And eight people who were climbing with him died on that climb. If you're looking for a page-turner, now, I won't say that it's one of the best Christian books out there because it's not even a Christian book. It's just a real adventure book, and I enjoy reading those kind of books. Well, I don't want to give you the wrong idea. I enjoy reading Christian books as well. But this page, it's, it's what I call a page-turner, into thin air. Well, it, the book was so successful, Krukauer decided to write another book and the second book he wrote, a few years after Into Thin Air, the second book is called Into the Wild. It's another page-turner. It's another true story. Into the Wild is the story of a young guy named Christopher Johnson McCandless. He grew up in a wealthy family in Virginia. He went to Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, where he graduated with honors, but somewhere in this process, he grew disillusioned with all the wealth and power that people have in the United States. When he graduated from college, there was a two-year time span when he stopped communicating with his family. Now just imagine sending your son or daughter off to college and when they graduate, for two years, his mom and dad had no idea where he was or what he was doing. His, his mom and dad had given him, remember he's from a very wealthy, rich family, his mom and dad had given him this, an enormous amount of money to pay for his college education. And when he graduated, having all his tuition paid for, when he graduated from college, he still had $25,000 left in a bank account. He donated 
the $25,000, every penny, he donated it to an organization that was helping to feed homeless people. He abandoned his car in a flash flood in Arizona. Now, he's going to school in Georgia. One day, his parents get a telephone call from the sheriff in Arizona. They've discovered his, this car. The license plates still belong to the parents in Virginia. They have no idea where their son is. Remember, they haven't heard from him for two years. He abandoned his car in Arizona, and according to his journal, he hitchhiked to Alaska. And on April 28, 1992, he hiked into the Alaskan wilderness. Picture this, this young guy hiking into the wilderness. He's got a backpack. He's got a 22 caliber rifle. In his backpack, he has a 10-pound bag of rice, and he has a few books on how to identify edible plants in the Alaskan wilderness. <clears throat> According to his journal, he survived approximately 100 days before he was found by a moose hunter in Alaska. Some of you may have read this book. One of the suggested causes of his death was attributed to him making a mistake, being unable to identify poisonous mushrooms from edible mushrooms. By the time he realized his mistake, it was too late and he was too weak to walk out of the wilderness. He realized in his journal that he could not tell the difference between poisonous plants and edible plants. His death was based on the fact he made a mistake. Now remember, if I were to ask us to raise our hands, which I'm not going to do, how many of us have ever made a mistake in something that we judged or prejudged? Most of us would raise our hands. His body, his journal, and his camera were found by a hunter approximately two weeks after he died. He weighed 65 pounds when his body was found in his sleeping bag. His family had not talked to him for two years. One day, Jesus told a story to his disciples about judging people based on outside appearances. The story is recorded for us, and I'd like you to take your Bibles and open with me to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13. And I'm going to read verses 24 to 30. Now remember the context. Jesus is telling his disciples a story about the danger of judging people based on outside appearances. Matthew, 20, Matthew 13, beginning in verse 24. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field... But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? Verse 28, an enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you're pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first, collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, and then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Now, in telling this story, 
Jesus reminds us that it is God's plan for his children to live and interact and coexist with non-believers on this earth. It was never God's plan that Christians and non-Christians would not associate with each other. That was, let me say that again. It was never God's plan that Christians and non-Christians would not associate with each other. Look at verse 30. Let both grow together. Say that word, together. Oh, we need more people saying it. Say that word, together. Together. Okay, let both grow together until the harvest. On the night before Jesus was crucified, he prayed this prayer. It's recorded for us in John 17, 15. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Let me read that again. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but, now think about this, while they are living and interacting with non-Christians, that you protect them from the evil one. There's a time coming when God will establish His eternal kingdom on earth and Christians and non-Christians will at that time be completely separated. But that hasn't happened yet. In the meantime, we experience a form of the kingdom of God. And that's, what, that's really what Matthew 13 is all about. Matthew 13 was written to help us understand what life on earth is going to be like in the time between when Jesus went back to heaven until he returns to get us. And that's what the parable of the wheat and the weeds is all about. The parable, let me explain it, the parable is about a man who owns a farm and he planted a crop of wheat. Well, that's all good until that moment. He planted a crop of wheat, but one night while his farm workers were sleeping, an enemy came and sowed seeds of weeds among the wheat. When the wheat began to grow, well, you know how it is in the garden. When the seeds began to grow, so do the weeds. Everything's growing together. The workers came to their boss and asked, should we go out into the field and pull the weeds? And the landowner says, no! Don't do that. He said, we've got two real problems here. You can't go out there and pull the weeds. No, no, no. The first problem is, most people can't tell the difference between the weeds and the wheat. And the second problem is, even if you could tell the difference, underneath the soil where nobody can see, underneath the soil, all these roots are growing together. So in the process of trying to pull the weeds, you're going to end up pulling some of the wheat as well. He says, here's what we're going to do. Just let everything grow. And at the end of the growing season, at harvest time, when the when the temporary life of the wheat and weeds is over, then we'll bring the wheat into my barn and the weeds will be burned up. Now there's a principle right in there. It's, it's to this, to the farmer, it was more important to save the good wheat than to get rid of the weeds. Think about that. It's more important to save the wheat than to get rid of the weeds. Now, as crazy as it may seem to us today, there were weeds in the first century in Israel. There were weeds that looked so much like wheat that most people couldn't tell them apart. So he says, let's just wait until harvest time. And at harvest time, as the 
plants begin to mature and die, it'll be much easier to tell one from the other. The parable of the weeds and the wheat seems like an easy-to-understand parable. And yet one day, Jesus' disciples come to him, and they say this, Jesus, can you explain to us the story of the weeds and the wheat? And here's what Jesus said. We're still in Matthew 13. Let's go down to verse 36. Matthew 13, verse 36, and I'm going to read through verse 43. Verse 36, then he left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. And the harvesters are angels. Verse 40, as the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Now, let me say this, it's not an accident, it's intentional, that just prior to Jesus talking about the weeds and the wheat, he talks about the parable of the sower and the seeds. And as Jesus explained to his disciples, we can say as Jesus explained to his disciples almost 2,000 years ago, his explanation to the disciples is the same explanation Jesus would use today explaining to us, those of us who consider ourselves to be his disciples now. And here's the explanation. As we, we, you and I, we are to sow seeds of the gospel to those men and women and children who live and work among us. Let me say that again. You and I have a responsibility to sow the seeds of the gospel among the men and women and children who live and work among us. While it's true, and it is true, and I understand this, I've been in church all my life, while it is true that there, there may be opportunities during a Sunday morning service, and, and we would hope there are, when we can sow seeds of the gospel here at church, right? We would hope that, amen? Amen. Well, I've got one amen out of that, okay. Let me say that again. We would hope, we would trust the Lord that there would be opportunities to sow seeds of the gospel during our worship service, Amen. Amen. We would also trust God that there would be opportunities when we could sow seeds of the gospel during Sunday school. Amen? Amen. But God expects us to sow seeds of the gospel where we live and work during the week. Our job, here's number one. Now I'm going to give us a job description. Our job is to sow seeds of the gospel. Okay? Do we understand our job? Let's say that together. Our job is to what? Okay, it's not our job to judge people. We've got enough people out there judging. We don't need any more. Our job is to sow seeds of the gospel. 
Our job is not to judge whether or not a person looks like they're in love with Jesus or looks like they're not in love with Jesus based on what you and I see in another person's life at a particular moment. That's not our job to judge that person. That's God's job. Let's not get our job and God's job mixed up. We've got a job. God's got a job. Our job is to sow seeds of the gospel. What we need are more people telling people about Jesus. We don't need more people judging. Okay? Second thing is our job is to love the people God brings into our life. Let's say that together. Our job is to love the people God brings into our life. Let me share a couple of verses from John 13. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Turn to John 13. Then there won't be any confusion about whether or not I'm using a trick Bible up here, which I'm not. But I want you to see this in your own Bible. John 13, 34 and 35. There's a number of things that I find myself guilty of, and one of those things is reading the Bible too fast. I'm convinced that we sh- most of us should spend more time reading the Bible than we do. And when we read it, we should slow down and pay attention to what we're reading. John 13, verse 34 and 35. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. I want you to say that phrase with me together. If you love, let's say it again, if, okay, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Now let's just look at verse 35. I want us to understand what it says and what it doesn't say, okay? Verse 35 says, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The verse does not say, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you go to church on Sunday morning. It doesn't say that. The verse does not say, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you put money in the offering plate. The verse does not say that. Okay, it might say things similar to that in other places, but here it does not say that. It says, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Number one, our job is to sow seeds of the gospel. Number two, our job is to love the people God brings into our life. Number three, our job is to encourage people. It says in Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but when we come together, we're encouraging each other. And all the more as you see the day approaching. Our job is to sow the seeds of the gospel. Our job is to love and encourage the people God brings into our life. It's not our job to judge. Matthew 13, if you're, are we still in Matthew 13? Look at verse 38. Matthew 13, 38 says this. The field is the what? World, right? In the Bible it says the field is the world. Let's understand that. The field is not a building where we come together on Sunday morning. This is not the field. This is where we come and have church. The field is the world. The field is the world around us. And not only can we not always tell the weeds from the wheat, that's not our job. It's not our job 
to try and tell who's the wheat and who are the weeds. If Jesus were physically with us this morning here at Cross Point Church in Sioux Falls, he would say to me, and I, know, I, I can imagine one of the things he's going to say to me is, Steve, as you look at these beautiful people who are at Cross Point Church on Sunday morning, he says, now just picture this with me. As I look out here, I can't tell, I cannot tell which ones of you are really in love with Jesus and which ones of you are here because you didn't have anything else to do on Sunday morning. I can't tell that. And it's not my job to judge who's in which group. Because, you know, it gets confusing because in the world we have Christians who sometimes look and act like non-Christians. You know what I mean? And then we have non-Christians, this is where it really gets hard, we have non-Christians who sometimes look and act like Christians. So we need to stop judging and start loving. We need to stop criticizing and start encouraging. Over the years, I'll close with this, over the years. Well, I would guess that you and I have had many of the same experiences. But I've had experiences that I just cannot explain. I, I don't understand them, and I can't explain them. Over the years, I've known some, I want you to hear this, I've known some non-Christians who are some of the nicest and friendliest people in town. And at the same time, I've known people who claim to be Christians, who are some of the most opinionated, hard-headed, mean-spirited, nasty, stubborn, temperamental people that I've ever met. I can't explain it. If I were to try and identify the people who love Jesus and the people who don't love Jesus based on what I see happening in somebody's life at any particular moment, I would be wrong many times. So think about this with me as we close. Most of us, you know, most of us can't even tell the difference between a poisonous mushroom and an edible mushroom. Most of us would be in trouble if we hiked into the Alaskan wilderness. I can't tell you the difference between a poisonous mushroom and an edible mushroom. I can't even tell the difference when it's time to choose between vegetables. How do, how do we think, or why do we think that we have all the answers when it comes time to judge people? When we can't even judge between vegetables. We need to leave the judging up to God. Our desire here at Cross Point should be that our church here in Sioux Falls would be known as the church that loves God and we love the people, all the people, no matter where they are in their walk with Jesus, because until the gospel penetrates their heart and penetrates their mind, we have no reason at all to believe that they're going to change their behavior. We should be the church that loves God and loves all the people who live in Sioux Falls. Amen? Let me close in prayer. Lord, thank you for the time we've had together this morning. Thank you for the, the power of your word. And thank you, Lord, that even though Jesus told that story to his disciples almost 2,000 years ago, it's still important for us to understand it. And it's even more important for us to apply it to our life. So God, forgive us where we have failed. Forgive us, God, when those of us who are trusting Jesus, when there's moments in our life where we look more like non-Christians than Christians, 
Help us to walk with you. Give us a desire to get rid of the sin in our life. Help us to live our lives in ways that are truly different than the way the rest of the world lives. But in the meantime, in the same time, Lord, help us to love those people who live here near in and around us. Help us to be good testimonies. Give us opportunities, Lord, to share the seeds of the gospel with people. And then, Lord, we understand it's our job just to watch the seeds grow. Forgive us for all the times we have judged and misjudged others. Thank you, Lord, for this blessing of opening your word together this morning. May you continue to direct the steps of our life. And God, we ask that you'd care for us until we can come back and worship you again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.